Tonight I'd like to talk about relative and ultimate bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a word in Pali and Sanskrit. Jitta means heart or heart-mind, and bodhi means wisdom or awakening. So we could think of bodhicitta as being the heart-mind of awakening. The relative level of bodhicitta is compassion. It's realizing that our practice is not for ourselves alone. It's the aspiration to awaken, the aspiration to be liberated for the benefit of all beings. And we can practice this in a very simple and specific way, this relative bodhicitta, at the beginning and ending of each sitting, at the beginning and ending of each day. And we might begin with the simple aspiration, may I quickly be liberated for the benefit of all beings, with an emphasis on the quickly. (laughs) 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 And at the end of a sitting, or at the end of the day, we can practice this relative bodhicitta, this relative aspect of compassion with the dedication of merit. And there's one dedication which I find particularly inspiring. May the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times, of past, of present, and future. So we're joining our own effort with the virtuous actions of all the three times. May the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times. And all together may it be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. So it becomes a powerful dedication The ultimate level of bodhicitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. The relative level is compassion. The ultimate level of bodhicitta is this empty, aware nature. And it's said that when compassion and emptiness are both present, are both realized, enlightenment is unavoidable. And so tonight I'd like to discuss really what these two elements are. A transforming realization in practice, and one that was very meaningful for myself in my own own practice and development, was understanding that this relative and ultimate level, compassion and emptiness, are not two different things. They're not polarities. But we can really begin to see them as being expressions of each other. There's one teaching by the 18th century great Dzogchen master Shagpar, Shagpar, 
which beautifully expresses this union of these two levels. He taught that the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. The mind's nature, our mind's nature, is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So what does intrinsically empty mean? For many people, the word emptiness doesn't really sound all that appealing. You know, because we hear the word emptiness in English and we just may think of a kind of gray vacuity or a blank nothingness. The Pali and Sanskrit word that's translated as emptiness is shunyata. And in Buddhism, this word shunyata, which is translated as emptiness, has very many profound meanings. So it's worth exploring a bit what is meant by this term. Because it really is at the heart of understanding liberation, of understanding freedom. On the simplest level, we might understand emptiness to mean an absence of self-centeredness. Now usually we think of being self-centered as a personality problem. You know, we might think of ourselves or someone else as, oh, they're, they're really self-centered. Something, you know, we might go to therapy for. But really the word or the term has a deeper meaning, has a more fundamental meaning. It's when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives, a self-center. Becomes this reference point for everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do. It's the idea or the felt sense, which we've talked about in these past weeks, of there being someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. That's what self-center means on a more fundamental level. My body, my thoughts, my feelings. And usually we are living in the gravitational field of this self-center. You know, and in our lives we are just circling around our hopes and our fears, our plans, our worries, our work, our relationships. Like our lives revolve around this center of self, revolving around desires, you know, forever new experiences, even though we know so well and so clearly that they're continually changing. And it really is quite amazing as we look in our lives that we continue to do this. 
know, grasping after the next experience, as if somehow that will fulfill us. Through a sustained and careful wise attention, and through the power of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit and we are drawn more into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We begin to get glimpses of the zero center, of emptiness, rather than the self-center of I and mine. And this is the unfolding of our Dharma practice. The zero center becomes the new force of gravity in our lives. The great Sufi poet Rumi expressed it so well. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. You know, and that's really a wonderful expression of the relative and ultimate levels. <clears throat> of not being different, not being polarities. Living the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. So how do we experience, how do we, each one of us, actually taste or experience or realize this aspect of emptiness, this zero center? We touch it or we experience it in many different ways. We can get intimations of it just in our ordinary lives, even outside of meditation practice. Now sometimes, and you're probably familiar with this from your lives, where sometimes we just seem to enter into an effortless flow, where things are just flowing along, and sometimes it happens in art, or in music, or in sports, or in work. You know, we just get really absorbed in what's happening. We lose that sense of self, of ego in it. And we're, we're in the flow. That's a taste, that's an intimation. Things seem to be going on without us, and are much better for it. You know, it's like we step out of the way and allow things to happen. So that's, that's a glimpse, that's a taste in our ordinary lives. We can be reminded of the zero, empty, selfless center by our teachers, either by their words or by their presence. You know, as Guy mentioned the other night, his experience with Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, which just through the power you know, of his own understanding kind of opened up into this empty space. There was one student of Kala Rinpoche's, who was also a great Tibetan teacher. This student came from Canada, somewhere, I think in Saskatchewan or Alberta, and far out, you know, away from any Sangha or Dharma support. And she had been with Rinpoche in India, in Darjeeling, and then went home to Canada. And after months of being at home, she wrote to him and she said, the only thing that keeps me going is holding you in my heart. You know, and then two weeks or three weeks later, she gets a card back, a note back from Rinpoche, with only one line. 
the nature of the heart is emptiness. <laughs> but then a couple of weeks later, another card came <laughs> with a couple of more lines of teaching. He said, when you practice the holy dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. But to come to that clear sky of our mind, we have to let go, even of holding the guru in our heart. The nature of the heart is emptiness. So sometimes it's through the words or the presence of a teacher. We also experience emptiness, of course, through our own meditation practice. We really begin to experience this for ourselves. Through the practice of this careful mindfulness which we've been doing, we see that there is no existence independent thing that we can call I, that we can call self. There's no thing that those words actually refer to. Now in some way, the notion of self is the same as the notion of the big ice storm that just happened. You know, we went through this kind of intense, intense weather experience, and we call it, oh yeah, there was a big ice storm. But there's no storm. Storm doesn't refer to anything outside of the coming together of different conditions, you know, of wind and cold and snow and ice and, you know, and all these changing powerful energies whirling about, and we call it storm. But the storm is not something in itself apart from those powerfully changing conditions. In the same way, self is not something apart from the changing weather conditions of these mind-body elements. Then we look even deeper and we see that the elements themselves cannot be called self, cannot be called I. They're not lasting long enough. Now, as our mindfulness and concentration get stronger, we see that things are arising and passing so quickly, moment after moment. Nothing lasts long enough to be called self. And so this becomes another gateway into understanding, into realizing the essentially empty nature, empty of self. There's no past, no future, no present. That last, that was the real teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Jocelyn King, who was one of Uba Kin's early students, uh, she expressed this understanding uh, really well. She said, It's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. You know, the somethingness is constantly changing, moment after moment, not lasting even a moment. 
we try to take a stand on that, it's like quicksand. If we rest on the firm ground of emptiness, there's no problem. So we touch, we begin to experience this understanding of emptiness, of selflessness, just in our ordinary lives, when we touch that place of effortless flow through the presence or or teachings of a teacher, through our own meditation practice. There's another element of emptiness which is very accessible to us, uh, but which often we don't pay careful attention to. And that is when we begin to see more and more clearly that things are not amenable to our will. We cannot say with any hope of success, may my body not grow old. It's my body. Why can't I say that? Well, we can say it. But the body is not amenable to our will. May I never get sick. May I only have pleasant thoughts. May every time I sit, I experience blissful samadhi. Things are selfless in the sense that they are not amenable to our will. They're not in our control in that way. But rather it's the understanding that everything arises out of the appropriate conditions. If we want something to happen, it's necessary to understand the conditions necessary for that thing to arise. Now we can have the thought, may the water boil, may the water boil, may the water boil, but we'll never get the cup of tea unless we have some effective means for raising the temperature of the water to the boiling point. The boiling happens when the conditions come together, not because we wish it. When we see that everything is arising out of conditions, when we see the contingent nature of experience, that's when we really begin to open to and understand the empty, selfless nature. There's nothing at the core. There's nothing self-existent at the center of it all. Just as an experiment you know, in your lives, pay attention to those moments or those circumstances in your life when it's obvious that things are not conforming to your will. You know, it might be some condition of your body, you know, getting older or getting sick. It might be difficulties in a relationship, you know, where things are happening, you don't want them to be happening that way. Or maybe it's when, you know, at the end of the retreat and you go to the airport and you're there two and a half hours early, and you look up on the screen and the flight is canceled. It's clear at that time that things are not happening according to our will, according to our wish. Whatever those circumstances may be, whether it's circumstances of our body, of our mind, of external situations, we can notice how they are happening because of specific conditions. 
and not because we want them or don't want them to be a certain way. The more we see this, that things arise out of conditions, the more we're able to let go. The less we're frustrated by our lack of control, because we understand that we don't have that kind of control. And there's a paradox here that would be so helpful to not only our personal situation, but the situation in the world today. If only this understanding could be deepened. The paradox is that the more clearly we see that things are not amenable to our will, the more clearly we see how to accomplish our aims by understanding what the necessary conditions are to fulfill them. Do you see that? You know, when we're living in the illusion that things should follow or be the way we want them to be, independent of conditions, of course we're endlessly frustrated. And we see that with all our good intentions for peace in the world. It doesn't happen because of our wish. It happens from understanding the conditions that will bring it about. So this becomes a very powerful transforming realization. It's the application of the wisdom of emptiness into compassionate action in the world. The last way we touch emptiness or can begin to experience emptiness now, it's when we enter into that flow-like state in our lives, the teachings or presence of a teacher, by seeing in our own meditation practice that there's no one behind experience to whom it's happening, when we see that things arise out of conditions, you know, not subject to our will. And the last way we can touch or experience emptiness is emphasized in a lot in the Dzogchen and certain Zen traditions. And that is the seeing directly into the empty space-like nature of the mind. Now, in some very direct teachings, Padmasambhava, who was the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet, he said, it is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. And so in these teachings, it's suggested that we look directly into the nature of our mind and experience the empty, sky-like, space-like nature. Now it's important not to confuse the feeling of spaciousness with this space-like emptiness. Because very often in our practice, through the development of greater stillness or concentration or calm, we can get into a very spacious state. 
But spaciousness is still a state. It's a state that's conditioned, that comes into being and will pass when the conditions change. The emptiness that Padmasambhava is pointing to is not a conditioned state of spaciousness. It's characterized by what one teacher said, rather than think of it as spaciousness, think of it as groundlessness. And I think that's, that's a better and more apt understanding of what's meant. Everything is groundless. So this practice is not the deconstruction of the sense of self. It's not that we analyze it not only through our intellect but through mindfulness. It's not that we deconstruct the sense of self but it's rather the direct looking and the direct recognition of the mind's empty essence. There's a book written by a mathematician, I think he was at Harvard for some time, and it's a book about the history of the number zero. And it has a wonderful title, it's called The Nothing That Is. And when I saw the title, I got all excited because, I mean, it was just such a beautiful description of the nature of mind, the nothing that is. So I got the book and I started reading, and after the first paragraph, it lost me. (laughs) But the opening lines of the book kind of, for me, contained everything I needed to know. So the very, the very opening lines of this book, I think, is a, is a very profound meditation instruction. It says, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So if you, if you substitute mind for zero, look at zero, look at the mind, you see nothing but look through it and you see the world. There is nothing there, but it is not nothing. So the zero experience of mind, the experience of mind as zero, the nothing that is, we could call this ultimate bodhicitta, and this is what's meant in this context, by intrinsically empty. The mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So it's not that the mind is just emptiness. It's not that the mind is just zero-like or space-like. It's naturally radiant, and radiant here means this cognizing power, the knowing faculty of mind, the innate wakefulness, the innate awareness of mind. So we can understand mind as this union of emptiness 
and awareness, emptiness and wakefulness. And it's not two different things. They're different aspects of the same. Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great Thai meditation masters, he said, we should really call mind emptiness. But because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. So do you see in our own minds, all of this is not philosophic constructs. All of this is a teaching about how to understand, how we can understand the nature of our own minds. The nature of mind is empty like space. It has an innate wakefulness or knowing faculty. And as many traditions point out, this nature of mind, this union of emptiness and awareness is also inherently pure. The great Korean Zen master of the 11th century, Shinul, who wrote this wonderful book, which I recommend for when you leave. Uh, It's called Tracing Back the Radiance. He said, the nature of mind is unstained. And this is not the nature of the mind of the person next to you. Only. It's the nature of our own minds. The nature of mind is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. This empty, open wakefulness is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. So when we understand this or get a glimpse of it, we realize that it's not something we have to look for, something we don't have that we have to get. But it's what we come back to. It's what we learn to recognize and come back to as we let go of our various attachments and fixations. Ramana Maharshi expressed this practice very well. And this would be a great teaching to remember you know, as you go through the day. Ramana Maharshi was this great Indian saint. He said, try to be less, not more. You know, in our life and in our practice, we're always trying to be more. But the real spiritual path is being less. It's that letting go of attachment, letting go of holding. So there's an image that describes this movement from attachment and fixation to awareness. An image which describes the movement from delusion to the wisdom mind of emptiness from self-center to zero-center. And it's the image which is used of ice and water. Now when you think of ice, and it's not hard to imagine it these days, ice is solid, it's hard, it's frozen, it's a contracted state. It's the experience of our mind contracted in identification with any object. Whenever we're identified with the body, with thoughts, with feelings, even with knowing, 
Whenever there's any identification at all, any fixation, that's represented, that contraction is represented as ice. Ice is when we're lost in the movies of our minds. It's like being being at a movie theater and totally lost in the story, totally absorbed in the story, believing that what's on the screen is real, forgetting that we're in a movie. But what happens when in a moment of wakefulness, we're in that theater and we happen to look up and we see the beam of light you know, projected on the screen. We realize that on a more ultimate level, whatever's going on in the screen, you know, the love affairs and the car chases and the murders and the aliens from outer space, nothing is really going on at all. But when we're absorbed in the story, we forget that. We forget that it's only light projected on the screen. And then just to take the image a step further, what's the experience of the light when there's no screen for it to be projected on? There's a wonderful story expressing the wisdom of understanding this. And it's about, it's a story about the death of His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa. You know, and he died, I don't know, 17, 18, 20 years ago now. He was in uh, Illinois. He was dying of cancer. His body was a total mess. His students were around him at the time and you know, grieving a lot. He was this great, great being. People around him very upset. And at one point it said, he turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. So here he is, his body is completely, you know, filled with cancer and there are descriptions of it, it was really, it was just breaking down in so many ways. Don't worry, nothing happens. On the relative level, of course, there's the body, there's birth, there's death. On the more ultimate level, it's like that projection on the screen. Nothing is really going on. Well, we may not all be totally there yet, (laughs) but I find it inspiring to hold as a possibility. You know, that this is the kind of understanding and the kind of wisdom and the kind of freedom that is possible. In our lives and in our practice, we can watch how ice is forming many times in a day. They're just getting caught up in moments of desire or anger or worry, or pride or impatience or longing, all the things that we get caught up in. They're just passing elements of mind or passing feelings of the body. Our practice is to be with them without the identification, without fixation. So that's ice, is when we get caught. 
Water represents the nature of awareness. It's consciousness free of delusion. Now, water is unfrozen. Water is unfixated. It's that moment of coming out of the movie theater and realizing that everything we were caught up in is only a movie. It's all those moments of coming out of our mind dramas, you know, where we can get so lost and so caught up, and realizing in that moment, yeah, that was just a thought. It was just a thought. Now, there's a great discovery that happens. And that discovery is that water, or the open, empty nature of awareness, is nothing other than melted ice. So awareness is not some far-off other state that somehow we have to find or look for or get. It's rather this very mind which is unfrozen. This very mind free of clinging, free of attachment. Of course, as I've said very often, sometimes we can be in a state that feels like water, it feels like open, empty awareness, but it's really slush. You know, and a lot of our practice is beginning to discern what's slush and what's really water. And slush is when, you know, it feels open and empty, but still there might be subtle fixation, subtle identification, even with awareness itself. You know, slight holdings, slight attachments. You know, we have those moments. You know, we were sitting, sitting, everything's open, easy, flowing, and then all of a sudden there's a moment when something relaxes. Where we didn't even know we had been holding on until that moment of relaxation happens. So that's the continual clarification of our understanding, of our view. In this open, unobstructed nature of awareness, which is empty of self, there is a great spontaneity and responsiveness to situations. You know, it's like water flowing down the side of a mountain. It responds completely and appropriately to the topography, finding the shortest way down the mountain. And this is the third element of Shabkar's teaching. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. The nature of this empty, open awareness is not some kind of inert stillness. The empty, open awareness is ceaselessly responsive. There was a ninth, ninth century Chinese Zen master, Rinzai. And he talked about, in his language, what he called a person of no reliance. 
a person not imprisoned by the concept of self, the idea of self. He talks about this responsiveness, you know, the, the creativity and the unlimited potential when we're not confined in the prison of self. He said, if someone comes to me asking for the Buddha, as a person of no reliance, I present myself in a state of purity. If she or he asks for a bodhisattva, I present myself in a state of mercy and benevolence. If they ask for nirvana or complete enlightenment, I present myself in a state of utter serenity. Though there are hundreds of thousands of states, as a person of no reliance, I am always the same. Therefore, my presentation of various states, according to the requirements, is just like the moon that freely presents its images on every surface of water. In the emptiness of self, the nature of mind is ceaselessly responsive according to circumstances. And this is the meaning of compassion. On the relative level, we practice compassion, we cultivate compassion, and we do it in two different ways. One way is highlighted in the Pali texts, where the Buddha emphasized that by purifying ourselves, then we naturally and inevitably take care of others. And we hear this, you know, every time we go on an airplane, we hear it in the safety announcement. If there's a sudden loss of cabin pressure, the oxygen masks descend. Please put your own on first and then assist those around you. And the image is so clear. Can you just imagine if there was a loss of cabin pressure and we don't put our own on and we're trying to help others around us, then we're getting oxygen deprived and we're kind of stumbling around just causing a lot of confusion. If we put our own on first, then we actually are able to assist everyone around us. So it's important to understand that our own purification becomes the basis for compassionate action in the world. As we become less greedy, less selfish, less fearful, less judgmental, the the automatic, inevitable manifestation of that is more kindness and more compassion. So that's one way of understanding the practice and the cultivation of compassion. The other way is expressed very beautifully by the great Indian saint Shantideva in a book called The Bodhisattvas, The Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Now, the the Dalai Lama, as many of you know, is a great devotee of Shantideva and really is a great exemplar of that practice. And in that teaching, it says, practice compassion by putting others before yourself. So it's really approaching it from a different angle. I want to read a few verses from this book, The Bodhisattva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. 
just expressing that possibility of living in the world. It's from some uh, verses which are called uh, the seven-branched prayer. It says, For everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient sentient beings, those poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. It's possible to hear this. and be really inspired by that possibility of living like that. But it's also possible to hear it and feel a bit overwhelmed. I mean, that's a major aspiration. To live in that kind of selfless service for the benefit and welfare of beings. Would we ever be able to fulfill such an aspiration I think we have to undertake this or hear this in a very humble way. The Dalai Lama, we could follow his lead in this, he said, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So here's the Dalai Lama recognizing this is a vast aspiration. We may not agree with his assessment of his own practice of it, but it's quite, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So on one level, we practice compassion. We cultivate compassion as a practice through our own purification and seeing how the compassion manifests from that, from the practice of putting others before oneself. Really practicing with that aspiration to be of benefit to all. So that's the relative level. On the ultimate level of bodhicitta, we understand compassion in a different way. We understand on the ultimate level that compassion is the expression of emptiness. It's not something on this level that we need to practice or cultivate. It is the very nature of emptiness itself. 
And this understanding of the union of compassion and emptiness, that they're each expressions of each other, for me helped to illuminate the bodhisattva vows. Now, ever since I became interested in Buddhism, of course, I'd come across the bodhisattva vow and some expressed in various ways, but beings are numberless, I vowed to save them. Well, I read this, you know, from the beginning and would get tremendously inspired, but also it just felt completely impossible to me. And it felt just out of the range of possibility. How could I possibly save all beings? If we understand the Bodhisattva vow as resting on the shoulders of self, it's a long, hard journey. I mean, I just to feel the burden of saving all beings and resting on the shoulders of an I, of a self, it really does seem quite impossible. But if we understand compassion as the expression of emptiness, as the activity of emptiness, then it becomes, this bodhisattva vow becomes tremendously inspiring. It's the way of our whole life unfolding. It's not that I, the self, me, is undertaking this great task. Rather, the I, the me, the self is getting out of the way. And in that experience or realization of emptiness, of selflessness, compassionate activity flows. Kenzi Rinpoche, he, he talked about this beautifully. He said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So it's not the self that saves all beings. It's the understanding of emptiness. Out of that realization, compassionate activity, compassionate responsiveness, creative responsiveness, dawns uncontrived and effortless. And so in this way we can see that this is a way of life just unfolding for us. So we plant this small seed of bodhicitta within us. And we need to do it without pretension and without grandiose expectations. We just plant this very small seed, nurturing the aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all, be for the awakening of all, be for the happiness of all. And maybe it's even more humble than that. Maybe it's planting the seed of simply wishing to have the aspiration to live for the benefit of all, 
wherever we are, you know, in our understanding, we just plant that seed, that very small seed. But Thoreau talked about the wonderful power of a seed. He said, though, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. So this is our practice. Now we plant the seed of bodhicitta. On the relative level, it's compassion. On the ultimate level, it's emptiness. When these two are present, enlightenment, awakening, is unavoidable. And we practice with this understanding, or with this motivation, that it be for the happiness, the welfare, the liberation of all beings everywhere. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.